All right. Man, I love this church. Love this church. And I'm glad that two of you do too because it is, it is awesome. No, I do. I love this church, guys. You are an encouragement to me. I got to be honest with you. There are some weeks um, when I struggle and I'm like, man, I, I'm having a hard week. It, did, you, did you hear? I, there's a story about this guy that is, uh, wakes up on Sunday morning, rolls over, tells his wife, says, I don't want to go to church this morning. And she says, you have to go to church. He says, no, I don't. I don't want to go to church. And she says, sweetheart, you have to go to church. And he says, I don't want to go to church. And she says, you have to go to church. He says, give me one good reason why I have to go to church. And she says, because you're the pastor. And uh, thanks, Rick. And I'm telling you guys, there are some weeks that I feel that way. You didn't believe that about me, did you? But there are some weeks when I wake up, like this morning, and I say, I don't really want to go to church. But then I show up here, and I see you guys, and you encourage my heart. And I've never once come to church here and said, man, what a waste of my time. You guys are a strength to me. And every time I'm here and we encounter the presence of God together, it just uh, its awesome to me. So, hey, listen, I'm taking a break from our Game of Thrones series again this week. Um, I think last week was a timely break from Game of Thrones, and um, didn't our ladies do an amazing job last week? Man, it was so good, so good, and um, I just enjoyed it very much, and um, I just kind of wanted to build on what Mary talked about last week, because um, last week focused a lot on exposing the rips, exposing the tears and the flaws and the pain and the struggles that we go through. And um, authenticity is one of our core values here as a church. Um, There's there's such thing as being real, and you see we value real over here. Um, We're real people, real hope, real life. But sometimes being real or being authentic really is just an excuse to be nasty, right? How many of you have met somebody that is just nasty and they're like, well, I'm just being real. And I'm like, no, you're being an idiot. Okay, so stop. That's, uh, but sometimes I'm blunt like that. Um, so that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about taking the risk of exposing ourselves a little bit so that other people can see us and love us and help us and we can be an encouragement to each other. And so, um, so I'm going to talk a little bit more on the struggle side of things um, because um, the struggle really is real. How many of you can identify with a struggle that you're going through in your life? How many of you are going through or recently have gone through a struggle? Okay, let me just encourage you. If you're not going through a struggle right now, you will be soon. It's the way that life works, right? You're either in a struggle, you've just come out of a struggle, or you're fixing to go into a struggle. It's just the way it works. And, um, and so there is a biblical framework for suffering that we see in Scripture. If you go all the way back to the, the, the book of Genesis and you begin to look at Adam and Eve and their story, they set the stage for us to struggle, didn't they? Everything was beautiful and great in the Garden of Eden, and then Adam and Eve said, that fruit looks too good to pass up. To which I say, what fruit really couldn't you pass on? You know, I mean, I like fruit. I eat fruit, but it's not like a Reese's peanut butter cup, you know? Now, a Reese's peanut butter, maybe the tree in the Garden of Eden had Reese's peanut butter cups hanging on it. And they were just like, yo, I cannot pass that up. You know, I don't know. Maybe it was like Lay's potato chips. They couldn't eat just one. I don't know what the story was on that tree, but there was something so seductive that they had to eat it. And when they did... It brought suffering and struggle to all of mankind, to which we all say, thank you, Adam and Eve. That was so great. We appreciate that. Um, I remember talking to Daniel one time. He was like, Dad, I am so angry at Adam and Eve. And I was like, I get it, buddy. And he's like, if they wouldn't have sinned, and I interrupted him, I said, you would have. <laughs> right? At some point, I would have screwed it up for all of humanity. One of us would have taken care of it if Adam and Eve didn't, right? So they just happened to be the first people, so they got it out of the way for all of us, right? Because that, you know, it was kind of one of those situations where when God, and let me just explain this really quickly. God gave humanity a choice. 
Because God said the highest ethic of all is love. God established the highest ethic and he determined that the highest ethic would be love. In order for love to exist, choice has to exist, right? You can't, you can't force love. You can't make someone love you, can you? I've tried. I, I have this personal thing where I love to get people. I, I like when people like me, okay? It's not required. I don't have to have you like me, but I want you to like me. When I go into the grocery store, I want to choose the meanest checker that's there, and I'm going to try to make that person's day. And if I go regularly, I will wait in your line if your line is long, if you're the grumpiest checker, because I want to try to win your friendship, and I want to try to earn a relationship with you. It's just how I roll. Most of you are like, you're sadistic. Um, it's, but I love, to, because I believe that Jesus loves me on my worst days, and so I want to love other people on their worst days. That's what love looks like. Love doesn't always seek the easy path, does it? Love looks for the complicated situations and says, I'm going to invest myself in the middle of the struggle. So God designed humanity for love, didn't he? he? He designed us to love him. Jesus breaks it down for us. He says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus himself states with simplicity the highest ethic for humanity and for God is love. And for love to exist, choice must exist. And you know that when you're given the choice to do what is right or do what is wrong, you always, 100% of the time, choose to do the right thing, right? Okay, good. I'm thanking, thanking, thanking God that you guys are honest. All right? So, so as we go through life, we see that this conflict exists because we want to love. We want to get love right. But we have to get over ourselves in order to do that, right? And that's a process. And sometimes we have to get over other people's junk too, don't we? It's painful. Jesus tells us in John chapter 16, verse 33, in this life, there will be trials, struggles, pain. You may not even believe in God, but you can agree with Jesus on that point, right? In this life, struggle is real. The struggle is real. And then when I read the book of Acts, man, holy mackerel, those guys endured some struggle, didn't they? I think about the disciples in Acts chapter 5 <clears throat> when they go before the Sanhedrin and the Sanhedrin is talking to them about, hey, you've got to stop spreading the message of Jesus. You've got to stop preaching Jesus. And they say, no, we're not going to stop. And Peter even gets in their face a little bit and is like, of course, I'm going to preach this Jesus that you crucified. And they say, look, we're going to beat you. And so they beat all the disciples and they send them away. And what do the disciples do as they leave the Sanhedrin? They praise God. They celebrate. They rejoice. They say, we are so grateful to be counted worthy to suffer for the name of Christ. Wow. And when I think about the struggles that we go through, sometimes it's like, is that really a real struggle? Right? Somebody posts something stupid on Facebook and we lose our mind. Right? I'm like, I, I've never been beaten for the name of Jesus. I've been made fun of here and there. But come on, really? And then, then you look at Paul, 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 22. Paul says, uh, I'm sorry, I'll start with verse 23. He says, are they servants of Christ? I know I sound like a madman, but I have served him far more. I've worked harder, been put in prison more often, been whipped times.
times without number and face death again and again. Five different times the Jewish leaders gave me 39 lashes. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. Once I spent a whole night and a day adrift at sea. I've traveled on many long journeys. I've faced dangers from rivers and from robbers. I've faced danger from my own people, the Jews, as well as from the Gentiles. I've faced danger in the cities, in the deserts, and on the seas. And I have faced danger from men who claim to be believers but are not. I've worked hard and long, enduring many sleepless nights. I've been hungry and thirsty and have gone without food. I've shivered in the cold without enough clothing to keep me warm. You would say that Paul's had it kind of rough, right? And so suffering is consistent with Scripture. Yet Paul says, consider it pure joy, right? James says, consider it Pure joy, brothers and sisters, when you face trials of many kinds, right? And, and to which we all say, seriously, consider it joy? But let's look on. This, um, I actually just want to take a break for a second and just share with you personally. This has been um, kind of a tough year for my family. We've gone through uh, some struggles uh, the beginning, the very beginning of this year, I got a call from my dad, and um, I, I can count probably on one hand the number of times I've heard my dad cry. And when he called me in January, he was, he was sobbing on the other end of the phone, and he just said, it's cancer. And so this year, we've walked through um, cancer with my mom, and it's been tough. My mom's actually in the hospital right now because the chemotherapy's made her so so sick that she's dehydrated and she's going through all of this stuff. So it's like, man, this is tough to deal with. And then we went through some some interpersonal struggles with some people that we love very much, and it was like agonizing to walk through this season. And so um, those things have been difficult. <clears throat> this year, um, Mary's faced some health crisis. And um, we've kind of been walking through some things with that. And um, when she went to see the doctor a couple of weeks ago, the doctor said that she would probably need um, a hysterectomy to um, rectify some of the problems that she's wrestling with. And um, so they did some ultrasound and testing to find out what was going on inside. And um, they, they found a cyst on one of her ovaries. And, and they said, well, this kind of fits endometriosis, which she struggled with since she was little, which since she was young. Um, but um, it, some of the imaging showed that it was a solid mass on her ovary. And so um, they did some blood work, <clears throat> and we got a call on Wednesday. The doctor said um, her tumor markers are elevated in her blood. And so on Friday, she has to go see an oncologist. Um, to see kind of what next steps are. Um, the doctor said, you know, we're not sure that it's cancer. We're not saying that it's cancer for sure, but um, it's concerning. <clears throat> and so anytime that that word cancer comes up in conversation, it's tough. And um, some of you have walked through it. Some of you are walking through it. And it is, uh, you know, I'm a man of deep faith, but I also am a man. And so I wrestle with fear. In some moments, I have incredible faith. And I'm like, yes, God, you are able. And in other moments, I struggle. And suffering is a real thing. You know, struggle, pain. <clears throat> and <clears throat> so I'm sharing with you guys because you're my family. And and we don't we don't want to wrestle with things alone. We want to share with you. We want to share life and I want to do it <clears throat> for several reasons. One is 
I want to live out my relationship with Jesus in front of you guys in a way that's visible. And again, you've heard me talk about it for a long time. As long as I've been at this church, I've been talking about we are real people living an authentic life. And so on some levels, we have to expose ourselves. And this is one of those things that I feel this is important for us to walk through with our church family because we know that you guys love us. I know some people go through things and they struggle in private. And I'm like, don't. Don't struggle in private. There's literally zero value to struggling in private. Because as we live this thing out together, you can help me on days when I'm struggling. And you can encourage us on days when we're struggling. I also, I want you guys also to see a biblical plan of how to deal with your own struggles. Because you're going to face struggle. You're going to face trial. You're going to go through stuff. And so today I want to share with you some, some biblical ideas on how to go through struggle. This is my journaling Bible. And as I've been journaling through the scripture this year, about, um, I don't know, three weeks ago, I started the book of Job. And um, what's so interesting about it is that when I started, um, I felt like we were coming out of some significant struggles. And so I started the book of Job like, good, feel good about that. And um, but as I as I started writing, um, we started to get some of this news from the doctor, and it's been eye opening. Now, um, let me say as a disclaimer that I am in no way comparing my struggles with Job's struggles. Okay. We look at Job chapters 1 and 2, and, and honestly, it is some of the most painful experience that anyone could ever go through. Um, Job, in a moment, lost all of his wealth, all of his livestock. He lost all 10 of his children in a single day. He lost his health. Literally, the scripture gives different pictures of Job's health. We know that his body was covered by sores. Scripture says that his flesh stunk as it rotted away. He would sit in in, um, cow dung and scrape his sores with broken pottery to try to get some relief. His flesh was literally falling off of his body. And the whole time, He's got friends sitting next to him, telling him how wicked he must be for God to bring this sort of judgment on him. But when you read Job 1 and 2, you hear that it was precisely because of his goodness that God allowed the struggle to come on him. And so the problem for Job, though, is Job didn't have the option of reading Job chapters 1 and 2. Right? We get to look at Job chapters 1 and 2 and go, oh, I understand kind of why this is happening. But here's Job. In a single day, the scripture says that one servant shows up at his house and says, hey, the house where your kids were partying fell down and it killed them. Hey, we had another son and a daughter that were taken away in a tornado. Hey, we had to, and it just one right after another. Bad news, bad news, bad news, bad news. And, and as Job is experiencing this, he has no frame of reference for what's happened. And so the central question that Job has is the question that you and I have, and that is, why? How many of you, when you're going through struggle, You want to know why? Raise your hand. I think that's all of us. You know, here's the reality. I can endure a lot of pain if I understand why. Several years ago, I had a procedure on my back. I had a synovial cyst attached to some vertebrae in my back, and they had to remove it. And I remember going in, and the doctor said, hey, we're not going to be able to numb all of the tissue down to where the cyst is, but, you know, we're going to use this 
needle and we're going to go into your back and, you know, then we'll run you through a, a CAT scan tube to kind of see where the needle is in relation to the cyst. And then we'll pull you out and we'll try it again and then we'll put you back in and then we'll pull you out and then we'll try it again and then we'll pull you. And, and so don't worry, though, we usually get it within 20 times or so. Um, so, so here I am for like 45 minutes and the doctor's trying to get this needle in this thing. And, and there's a point at which I was like, brother, you may want to think about some wrist restraints from me right now because my hands are free and this is really painful. And, um, and, but I was able to lay on the table and endure the pain because I knew there was a purpose behind it. Right. And so for us, I think a lot of times why helps frame things up. But here's the problem. What happens when why doesn't get an answer? What do we do when there is no answer to the why question? How many of you are in the middle of a struggle right now and you're asking why and you feel like God is not giving you an answer? Raise your hand. Yep. Can I, can I tell you? Job waited 32 chapters before he got an answer to his question, but he never got an answer to his why. He never got an answer to his why. So as we go through this, um, I'm going to kind of, I think at some point this summer, I'm probably going to preach a series out of the book of Job because it's, I think it's really, really good content, and I think we can learn a lot about how to process struggle. Um, I think one of the, one of the reasons, and, and um, I, I can't begin to answer um, the why question for you. I can't begin to tell you why God allows suffering. There are a lot of people way smarter than me that have been asking this question and, and debating theological answers to this question for years. And it seems like humanity is still not satisfied. Nobody's ever hit on something where we're like, oh, well, that makes sense. I got it. Good. Right? So we all struggle with suffering. And um, honestly, sometimes I think we give our, ourselves a lot of credit thinking that we can understand things that we really can't. So I, I'll say this in terms of our ability to process the answer to why. I think that for most of us, if God really answered why, I don't know that we would be able to wrap our minds around it anyway. Uh, uh, about once a year, I try to read a book on something that is way over my head. Um, it helps me feel much smaller, and I need that in my life. I need God to reduce me you know, continually, I need God to reduce me. Last year, I read a book on the neuroscience of addiction. I still have no idea what I read, right? I read like, understood like 1% of it. And I was like, well, that was awesome <laughs> and painful. I am so ignorant. You know, that's just, and that, when I say ignorant, just as a framework, my grandfather used to tell me, son, Everybody's ignorant, just the different subjects, right? So don't worry. That's not like an insult if I say I'm ignorant or you're ignorant. You're, just don't worry. You're all ignorant, okay? Just of different subjects. So don't worry. It's okay. Just relax. Um, so this year, I read a book um, talking about Einstein's quantum theory. And what? Right? Like, he tries to explain it in the book. And I'm like, okay, I get it. There's a train, and there's a clock, and there's a guy that's not moving, and then there's light, and then there's quantum particles, and then there's photon. Yeah, I got nothing. <laughs> and so he's, he's given me the why. He's given me the explanation to why, and I'm still standing there going, what? Right, And so I think really that that should be the basis of our understanding of suffering because I think there's a lot of stuff that if God began to explain the why, we would still stand there going, what? I heard you, but I don't understand you. 
right? Like, I, sometimes I have a hard time understanding my wife when she's sitting across the table from me, right? How am I going to understand God who is so much infinitely separate from my understanding, right? The second part of this thing is, and this is what I know and this is what I can understand. As a father, one of my primary jobs is precisely not to protect my kids from everything. Some of you are like, what? I believe it is in our job description as parents to not keep our kids from experiencing struggle and pain. I think if you protect your kids from everything, you're doing a disservice to your kids. Because at some point, they're going to get exposed to the pain of reality. And they can either experience it for the first time under your roof with your guidance and strength, or they can experience it in the world when everybody is going to do their very best to kick the snot out of them. How many of you have experienced that in the world? Right? And so what I would contend is that God allows us to experience struggle because he loves us. It is because God loves us that he allows us. There are times when I allow my kids to experience consequence of their bad decisions. I remember when Daniel left his bike at the end of our driveway one time. And I had told him on probably 20 different occasions, Daniel, if you leave your bike at the end of our driveway, it's going to get destroyed and you're going to be without a bike. And Daniel kept forgetting, and Daniel kept forgetting. And one day, it got run over and crushed. And Daniel came to me, he's like five years old, and he's crying, Daddy, my bike is destroyed. And I said, Son, I am so sorry that happened. Oh, man, that stinks so bad. And, and I just empathized with him and I loved on him and I hugged him and he said, Daddy, will you buy me a new one? And I said, no, (laughs) I will not buy you a new bike because I've told you that if you leave your bike at the end of the driveway, it's going to get run over. But I will help you save. If you'll bring me your allowance, I'll put it back for you. And I'll give you some jobs around the house that you can do to help save money. And you can buy a new bike. (laughs) Okay, Daddy. Right? And, And there's a principle in this because what we learn through struggle is that we mature. We mature through struggle. And how many of you have met kids that their parents never allow them to experience any struggle or difficulty and give them everything they want all the time? How many of you just love to hang out with those children? Why did all the hands go down? Right? Because it's snot-nosed punk kids, right, is what you end up with. Right? These spoiled, rotten kids that are nasty to everybody around them and think that the world revolves around them, right? Right? So if we don't want to raise kids like that, most certainly our Heavenly Father doesn't want to raise kids like that, right? And so God allows us to be exposed to struggle and suffering because He wants you to become something. He wants you to become something. Touch your neighbor and says, God's got big plans for you. The problem with with us so often is that we just don't like struggle. So I want to ask you this. What if the question why misses the point entirely? What if why isn't even the point? What if you're looking for an answer to the wrong question? What if you're looking for an answer to the wrong question. I think that James says, consider it a sheer gift, friends, when tests and challenges come at you from all sides. And then he, he goes on to say that our struggles develop within us 
perseverance. And if you can develop perseverance, James, the brother of Jesus, tells us that you will be perfect and complete, not lacking anything. Well, I don't like that. I would rather just get perseverance and persistence automatically, right? How many of you know that in order to develop calluses, you got to work, right? In order to stop blisters, you got to go through some blisters to get some calluses, and then it won't affect you the same way in the future. I can tell you now that the things that I deal with on a daily basis would have destroyed the 25-year-old version of me. I couldn't have handled it. But God's developed some calluses in my spirit that have allowed me to move into these things. He's given me some authority in some areas because of it. And he continues to work it in me. The problem is that, like Job, we have a little bit of a kindergarten theology. Right? Job and his friends kind of posit this kindergarten theology. And the kindergarten theology is either Job is wicked and sinful or God is unjust. Both of those put me as the center of the universe, though. Right? This is a very self-focused. And kindergartners are very self-focused people, right? I, I remember... One of my experiences in school, I only went through uh, third grade in grade school. But one of the classes that I remember most was kindergarten because there was a kid in my class that was mean. He was just hateful. And I felt like he was the target or, or he had targeted me as the focus of all of his anger and hatred and bitterness toward the world. And I remember one time we were in circle time and he punched me in the stomach. And, and, and I remember my world was so small, I didn't see that he was picking on all the rest of the other kids in class. I thought it was just me. Right? And so I narrowed it down to where I was the only one that suffered. I was the only one that struggled. And I know that sometimes it feels that way when we're going through a struggle. We just want the world to stop, right? I want to stop my responsibility. I want to just deal with what's going on in my head. I just want to wrestle with the things that are affecting me. But what I know is I can't. And here's, here's something that we all have to understand, guys. The world doesn't revolve around me. It doesn't. As much as I'd like it to some days, right? As much as I would like it to some days, it doesn't. And so, as Job wrestles with this, and he asks the question why, and he doesn't get answers, and it's, it's hard because there's 42 tap chapters in Job, so I would love to, to go through verse by verse and go through things, but I'm just kind of having to condense because we're short on time. But Job continues to ask the question why, and as you read the book of Job, you hear him shift his position toward God. In Job chapter 16, verse 33, Job makes this declaration that's so powerful. He says, though he slay me, yet will I serve him. I don't care what God does to me or allows me to experience. I'm going to serve him because I love him. And then you hear him later in Job chapter 23. Um, let's read this. Job chapter 23. I want you to hear the change in Job's attitude. Start with verse two. He says, my complaint today is still a better one. And I tried hard not to groan aloud. If only I knew where to find God, I would go to his court. I would lay out my case and present my arguments. Then I would listen to his reply and understand what he says to me. Would he use his great power to argue with me? No, he would give me a fair hearing. Honest people can reason with him, so I would be forever acquitted by my judge. Do you hear Job is now putting God on trial? Job is standing in judgment of God. And can I tell you something? I hear this all the time from people. P 
people stand in judgment of God. Now, you would never say it that way, but you question it this way. If God is so good, then why? If God is so good, then why? And let me ask you a question. Who do we think we are that God would owe us an explanation? How big are you that God owes you an explanation? Wrestle with that for a little bit. I'm just not that big, guys. But here's the thing, and, and I think this is, this is so critical in all of this, in all of this understanding. Why misses the point entirely? Why misses the point entirely? As we, as we read on, flip over to Job chapter 38. It's kind of cool because Elihu um, is a young friend of Job's, and he's kind of sitting around listening to the older guys banter back and forth, and finally he gets mad at Job's three friends, and then he also gets mad at Job, and he kind of lets Job have it. But as, he, as he's about to wrap up his monologue, as he's going after Job and his friends, he starts to make reference to the storm, and he starts to compare God to a storm. And most scholars believe that Elihu's kind of watching this storm build on the horizon, and the clouds start to form, and the lightning starts to flash across the sky, and the, and the thunder starts to roar in the distance. The winds pick up, and that cold air starts to blow across the skin, raising the goosebumps on the arms. And then when God shows up, chapter 38, verse 1, it says, Then the Lord answered Job from the whirlwind, literally from the tornado. So as all of this storm is building, a tornado begins to rip across the countryside, and God shows up and begins to speak out of the tornado. What a way to make an entrance, right? And listen how God begins to address Job. Who is this that questions my wisdom with such ignorant words? Do you hear the tone that God's taking with Job? It's just like what I said earlier. Who do you think you are that I would owe you an explanation? You may want to bring yourself down a couple notches, Job, before you start to box with me. Because let me tell you, your arms are too short. I've got you on reach by a couple billion light years. So sit down and listen, boy, because I'm getting ready to share a couple of things. And then he goes on. Brace yourself like a man. Because I have some questions for you. So, Job, you've been sitting here asking me, why, 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 why? Well, let me ask you a few questions, Job. We're not expecting this, are we? We're expecting the tender, gentle voice of the Spirit to whisper in Job's ear, Job, it's okay, buddy. Everything's going to be fine. I love you so much. Put your head on my chest. Cry your tears on my chest. It's okay. But he doesn't. He gives the opposite of what you think he would need in the middle of his adversity. He hits him with, who do you think you are? Put on your pants, big boy, because I'm fixing to take you to school. And then he goes with this. He says, tell me, where were you? When I laid the foundations of the earth. Tell me if you know so much. Who determined the dimensions and stretched out the surveying line? What supports its foundations and who laid its cornerstone? As the morning stars sang together and the angels shouted for joy, who kept the sea inside its boundaries as it burst from the womb? And as I clothed it with clouds and wrapped it in thick darkness, for I locked it behind barred gates, limiting its shores. I said, this far and no farther will you come. Here your proud waves must stop. Have you ever commanded the morning to appear? Job, I'd like to know. 
and caused the, the dawn to rise in the east? Have you made daylight spread to the ends of the earth to bring an end to the night's wickedness? As the light approaches, the earth takes shape like clay pressed beneath a seal. It is robed in brilliant colors. The light disturbs the wicked and stops the arm that is raised in violence. And God goes on and on and on. And God answers Job's why question with a series of questions. And what's God doing in this moment? Like, What's he trying to prove? What's he trying to do to Job? Well, he tells us in the first part of that chapter, doesn't he? He says, you're asking out of ignorance. And by giving these questions, and there are 72 questions that God asked Job. And only three of them does modern science give us an answer to. So 4,000 years of asking these 72 questions, and we've got three answers. Pretty awesome, humanity. We've done a bang-up job, right? And I think the point that God's making is, you, you guys remember that movie, A Few Good Men? With Jack Nicholson, Tom Cruise, and, the, yeah. and, and then you have this moment where Tom Cruise is going after Jack Nicholson as he's on the witness stand, and he's bombarding him with question after question, and he says, what do you want? I want the truth. You can't handle the truth, right? I think God, in a way like God can do, is saying, you keep asking why as if you're getting after me to give you the truth. <clears throat> but you can't handle the truth. You don't have the capacity to understand the truth even if I gave you the answer to your why question. It's 4,000 years of human history between Job's writing and between today. We still have only answered three, three questions. Why do we think that we would have the capacity if God were to answer our why? My experience is that when we get answers to certain why questions, it only creates more questions. I have an insatiable hunger for an answer to why. I found out why, and now I want to know why that and so I live in this little cycle of why, 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 why. And I get an answer and I why. But why? But why? How many of you have ever hung out with an eight-year-old? And the eight-year-old starts asking you questions. Dad, why is the sky blue? Well, son, it really, it's about the refraction of light. And it's, you know, when the, and you say, and it, Why? Well, because there's this prismatic effect that happens. But why? Well, blue light travels further than red light, and, and red light can be... But why? Right? And this is what I do. I do this. And I notice sometimes God, in his infinite patience, even has to go... Right? So then what do we do? It's interesting because I think the, the big answer to this question, honestly, is life's just not fair. How many of you guys have ever rebuffed one of your children when they say, but it's not fair. And you say, but I thought it'd be a better chorus of voices saying, but life's not fair, right? And you believe that life's not fair. I tell my kids, fairness ended in the Garden of Eden. As soon as Adam chose to sin and death came upon all of us, fairness was over for good. Turn to Romans chapter 5. Verse 12 says, When Adam sinned, 
Sin entered the world. Adam's sin brought death. So death spread to everyone. For everyone sinned. That's not fair, is it? Is it fair that we suffer the penalty of death and hell because Adam sinned? Absolutely, it's not fair. But let's read on. Verse 25. I'm sorry, not verse 25. How about verse 15? Because there is no verse 25, so you'd be looking for that for a while. But there is a great difference between Adam's sin and God's gracious gift. For For the sin of this one man, Adam, brought death to many, but even greater is God's wonderful gift and his gift of forgiveness to many through this other man, Jesus Christ. And the result of God's gracious gift is very different from the result of that one man's sin. For Adam's sin led to condemnation, but God's free gift leads to our being made right with God, even though we are guilty of many sins. For the sin of this one man, Adam, caused death to rule over many, but even greater is God's wonderful grace and his gift of righteousness. For all who receive it will live in triumph over sin and death through this one man, Jesus Christ. Now, this is the part of the equation that is so powerful. Because Adam sinned, we all experienced death. But because Jesus died, we all experienced life and resurrection. To which I would say, aren't you glad that life is not fair? Can you imagine if you had to atone for your own sin? Every one of you in this room would be headed for a cross. But Jesus said, it's not fair. It's not fair. And in that moment when Jesus is hanging on the cross, Scripture tells us that the sky grows black. Darkness covers everything. And Jesus, in agony, stretched out on a cross after hours of mocking and ridicule and beating and pain, exposed to humanity naked on a cross. In a single moment, all sin, past, present, future, placed on him. What's he say? He says, Lama, Ilo, Ilo, Lama Sabachthani, right? Just means, my God, my God, why? Why? In that moment, even Jesus says, why? It's not fair, God. Why? He's stand, he's up on this cross. Elevated between heaven and earth. Rejected by both. And he says, why? Why? And you know, God doesn't give him an answer either. So let me just close by saying this. I think in terms of questions that can be asked, why is probably the least productive. And I think what God demonstrates, if you read that chapters 38 and following in the book of Job, you'll kind of read between the lines and see God's answer to Job's why question is, Job, you're asking the wrong question. Let me give you stuff. If you've got a why question, let me give you a few more. How about this? And then he just goes through these questions, question, 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 question. And what he seems to be communicating to Job in all of this is stop asking why and start looking to who. Start looking to who. Who is God in the midst of my struggle? Here's another productive question to ask. God, what are you trying to form in me during this season? What do you want to shape in me? How about this one? How do you want me to respond in the likeness of Christ in the midst of my struggle? 
You ready for another one? Where can I go from here, Lord? See, these are productive questions that have answers to them that God wants to give you. Because God is always more concerned about who you become than how happy you are. There is nothing in Scripture that says God wants to make you happy. I know that we hear it from TV preachers a lot. But in, in the grand spectrum of God, what God wants for your life, He designed heaven for your happiness. He designed earth to prepare you for heaven. And so in this process, we've got to get better at asking the right questions. Would you stand with me this morning? I want to pray for all of us. And I don't know that I, I couldn't say this without the context of this Sunday morning, but I can say it because you all know where I'm coming from. God, I ask that you would help us ignorant people to wrap our minds around who you are in the midst of our struggle. God, I pray that you would reveal yourself deeply to us in the middle of our most broken, fragile seasons. Lord, I know for me, over the last several days, I've had several moments where I just stop and cry. I can't even compose myself, God. And in those moments of my brokenness, God, would you show yourself to me? Show yourself to me in a way that I, I couldn't see if I weren't struggling. God, I pray that you would wake me up to areas that I'm blind to. I pray that you would soothe me in areas where I struggle. I pray that you would teach me in areas where I'm ignorant. I pray most of all, God, that you would shape us. Shape us into the likeness of your son. God, help us to realize that the world doesn't revolve around us. Lord, help us to stop living like Everything is about me. I am so stinking tired of my selfishness and the heartache that results from it. God, help us to keep our eyes set upon you, the author and the perfecter of our faith. Shape something in us, Lord. I pray for each person today that's struggling, Lord. I pray that this word would take root in their heart. And I pray, Lord, that you would break pride. Break the pride that is keeping them from advancing to you. And God, I pray that you would open a door for your spirit to do a work that only you can do. In Jesus' mighty name we pray. And the whole church said, amen. God bless you guys. Thanks for being here today.